Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. You might want to keep that uh, passage open. Psalm 16. I wonder if you've heard the story of Dennis Newen and Melissa Goodwin uh, this week. It made headlines a few days ago. Dennis and Melissa had met in 2014 in their first year of medical school. They became best friends and a few years after their friendship developed into a romantic relationship. Dennis knew he wanted to marry Melissa about six months in and he started to put his mind as to how he could propose to her. So one of Dennis and Melissa's rituals uh, in their relationship had been doing the good weekend quiz together on a Saturday morning and so he thought uh, I'm going to use that to somehow construct a proposal. He emailed the Good Weekend editor to ask if he could get a mock-up version of the quiz and doctor it to suit his proposal. Now, the editor of the Good Weekend thought this was a good idea and said to Dennis, let's do it for real. So they sat down together and they devised 24 questions. Uh, The first letter of the first 24 questions contained the proposal. Will you marry me? Melissa Rose. Rose being an abbreviation of Melissa's middle name because it had to fit with the 24 questions. Question 25 revealed the key to solving the problem. So armed with his proposal, uh, Dennis bought the good weekend last Saturday and as was their custom, they went to a little cafe in Beechworth, their hometown, and they started to do the quiz. They got to question seven and breakfast arrived and Melissa suggested having a break and and having the breakfast, but Dennis said, no, no, we've got to keep going. This is really important today. They got to question 25, and they read back through the questions as directed. It took Melissa 17 letters to work it out. Will you marry me, Mel? And she broke down in tears. Men like me hate men like Dennis. (laughs) And I think cryptic love... It's a good uh, description uh, of what comes to mind in in that case, and it's also a good description of the psalm we're looking at this morning. Uh, It's entitled a miktam of David, and that that word miktam means something hidden or secret or a mystery. It's also been called the golden psalm. So if you put these two things together, what you have is a psalm that's full of precious secrets. It's hidden truths that are life-changing. And I want to look at three of these precious hidden truths this morning the first is that god is my refuge there in verse one keep me safe O god for in you i take refuge and that seems pretty commonplace it's a word that appears 88 times in the bible nearly half of that is in the psalms but the place where we really see uh, a lot of reference to refuge is in the cities of refuge that god established uh, when he put his people in the land now these were cities set aside for those who had murdered Uh, who had killed someone accidentally, and they could flee to these cities so that their life would be spared. So in this context, refuge is not just a shelter from the storm. It's not just a helping hand. It's for those who are in most desperate times of trouble, when we have absolutely nowhere else to turn to. Now, of course, God is not just for times of trouble, but I think he wants to know that when we are particularly in dire straits, when we have real needs where there seems to be no other way out, God is there for us. And this year I took a group of students to Hong Kong uh, to a place called Crossroads. And uh, part of what they do there is run simulations to show what it's like to be a refugee. Uh, The refugee run, it's called. And and we did this 
a particular simulation, and it was very realistic. We thought it was. Um, there were soldiers screaming at you, waving guns in your face, uh, taking everything you owned away from you, directing you under a tent and throwing some gruel at you. Uh, most of the girls we took were in tears. And a refugee who'd actually done the experience was asked, how realistic is it? He said, it's probably about 15% of what we experience. Now, most believe that this psalm was written by David when he was a refugee. He was on the run from Saul. He'd been kicked out of his home. The king was trying to kill him. 3,000 soldiers were in pursuit of him. David had no land, no title, no influence, no one he could appeal to. But David had God. And just as he'd been spared by the bear and the lion as a young man, and by Goliath as well, once again, God comes to his rescue. See, David knew this wasn't just good luck, just a coincidence. David knew God was a refuge, a place of safety when his life was in danger. I think it's the first great secret and mystery of this psalm, that God is our refuge. Of course, it's picked up in the New Testament. Paul outlines all the trials and troubles he goes through in Corinthians as a Christian. And 2 Corinthians 1 starts with 10 references to suffering, trials and trouble. But for every time the word suffering or trials or trouble is mentioned, the word comfort is shortly behind it. God's comfort for every trial we face. He's our place of refuge in times of trouble. Now, The second great truth in this psalm is that God can be our true love. And certainly for David, that is true. And again, that seems pretty obvious. Yes, I love God. But David's love for God was the deepest, most satisfying, all-fulfilling kind of love. And this really makes up the heart of the psalm. From verse 2 to 8, we see David express his love for God in, uh, in three particular ways. Have a look at verse 2. There's a declaration, firstly, of God's goodness. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. See, he doesn't say God is one good thing among many things. For David, God is the best. And without God, nothing is good. I think David here expresses what we often struggle to, that it's God himself and not his gifts that is loved. Because we can easily love the gifts of God, our beaches, our bodies, our hobbies, our relationships, they're easy to love. But if all that was lost, would we still love God? Would he be enough? That was Job's test. It was Hezekiah's test. It was Moses' test. It was the disciples' test. And here David is being asked the same question. John Piper put it this way. If you have him and nothing else then you have more than if you have everything else and not him. And have a look at verse 5 and 7. David says, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. David uses the word portion, cup, lot and boundary. And all that uh, recalls to mind the allotment of the land um, to the Israelites when they went into the promised land. Each tribe was given an inheritance, a part of that land, except the Levites, who were told that your inheritance would be the Lord's, and they were seen as blessed because of that. And David is, is uh, mentioning that sort of sentiment. He's declaring that God alone 
is enough for him. He doesn't need his title. He doesn't need his land. He's in a pleasant place. He knows he has a delightful inheritance. I think it's the same declaration Paul makes in the book of Philippians. I consider all these things rubbish, he says, for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And he's referring there to his money and status and position and power that he used to have. To him to live was Christ, to die was gain. In Christ, he found contentment, satisfaction and fulfilment. The second way David's love is expressed is through his love for people. Have a look at verse four, or verse three, sorry. As for all the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. See, David doesn't just tolerate or acknowledge God's people. He delights in them. Meeting other Christians should fill us with joy. There should be an immediate bond, a, a brotherhood or sisterhood, closer and deeper than other relationships for what we know and what we share together. So important is this matter. It is a way in which we can rem- uh, measure our relationship with God. Do you love other Christians? Do you find it good and rewarding to be with them? Do you seek their company? Those who love the Lord will love the company of the Lord's people. And of course, Jesus made that clear in the New Testament when he said that those who have done so-and-so for the least of those who belong to me have done it to me personally. Loving those who belong to the Lord is loving the Lord. And the third way David shows his love for God is through obedience. In verse 4 he says, The sorrow of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. David is declaring here his dedication to the Lord's service. His decision not to worship idols, not to stray from God, not to run after other loves. And David could have well have justified such actions. What has following God given him? He's got nothing. Where is God? He could have easily turned and tried to uh, uh, fill that, uh, that need with other uh, gods or other desires. But David didn't. And perhaps that's why David is called a man after God's own heart. Because you read through the Psalms, you see whether David's at the height of ecstasy or the depths of despair, he always turns to God. He's turning back to God. He's walking through life with God. Perhaps because he knows so clearly, verse 4, that those who run after other gods, those who turn their back on God, only meet with sorrow. Verse 7, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Other translations say, I have set the Lord uh, always before me. I know the Lord is always with me. And the one I like, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. See, the secret, I believe, for David's intimate, loving relationship with God is that deep, personal relationship he had. He walked through life with God. And I truly believe that that was nurtured in the Bethlehem Hills as a shepherd with the many hours he had just to contemplate his blessings, contemplate who God was. He spent so much time with God. I think we've lost that art of reflection, of time spent in silence, of meditation, of fixing our eyes on the Lord. 
because often our eyes are on a screen, an iPad or an iPhone. 85 times a day we check our devices, including first thing we wake up before we go to bed and even through the middle of the night. The average person spends eight hours a day in front of a screen. What's it doing with our relationship with God? Well, it's doing nothing. We are not growing and we certainly can't say we day that I keep my eyes always on the Lord. Now, many of you have been born after, uh, before the I generation, which is a good thing, but I guess we feel that frustration with our children and our grandchildren. Be still and know that I am God is a command we need to recapture if we are going to get anywhere close to the sort of passion and commitment that David had for God. It doesn't mean we have to be on our knees and hands all day long, but it might mean turning off the TV or leaving the headphones at home or just turning off the radio in the car. It might mean setting aside time to reflect on God's creation, on his blessings to us, on the truths of the gospel. It might mean not going to bed until we've read from his word. There's always enough time in the day. And the third and greatest secret of all is that God is my saviour. Have a look at verse 9 to 11. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. See, right throughout this psalm, David has declared that he's unshakable. I do this, I do that, I take refuge in you. I have no good apart from you. I will not pour out libations. I will praise the Lord. I have set the Lord before me. And yet we know that David is shaken, isn't he? He does fall. The scandal of the Bathsheba incident lies ahead, as does the murder of Uriah, as does the family conflict and the wayward sons and all those horrible incidents of David's life. But in these verses here, we see where David's true confidence lies. Verse 10 again. You will not let me see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal blessings. See, the greatest secret of all is what we call the gospel. God has saved me. He loves me more than I could ever love him. It's not because I'm righteous and I'm so good or special or anything I've done, but it's simply because of his great love. David didn't know the full extent of God's rescue plan. He knew it rested with trusting in God. And as he wrote this psalm, he prophesied the very way in which God would establish his plan in saving us all. You will not let your Holy One see decay, he declares. Now Peter picks this passage up when he preaches the first sermon after Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has just arrived. And he uses these very words here to communicate what it is that God has done. I'll just read you from verse Uh, 23 of Acts chapter 2. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked man, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. 
freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said this about him. And he quotes from verse 9 to 11. Verse 29, he picks it up. Fellow Israelites, I tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Because of the resurrection of the dead, Peter is saying, we too can have confidence that our bodies will not see decay. And so Peter closes this sermon by saying, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. See, Jesus is question 25, which directs us back to make sense of all that has come before. He is the great miktam of this psalm, the way God has ultimately made his love known to us. And when we see Jesus in these verses, we can actually see him in the whole psalm. He is the one that truly relied on God as his refuge. Jesus is the one who put God always before himself. Jesus is the one whose eyes was always fixed on the Lord God. Jesus did all that David desired to do but failed. And as such, Jesus is the one who can stand in my place. I'm saved because Jesus takes my sinful life and he gives me his righteous, perfect life in place. And so how much more with David can we say the words of verse 11? You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. But let us not forget where this psalm started in verse 1. Remember this life of gladness and joy and fullness is not a problem-free life. It's a life that may be challenged and face many levels of attack. Yet even in these times, we can experience joy and security and hope because of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful psalm, for the great secrets of your love that is contained within it. We pray that with David we would know you as a refuge, a a place of safety when we find ourselves in trouble. We pray that we would have a deep and passionate love for you. And we pray that we would know you as our saviour, our great hope, because of the love you have shown us in sending your son. Amen.